Welcome to the Leaders Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this episode, I talk with Amrit David, Managing Director at Barclays, for a final look at M&A in 2022. We discuss several deals completed with assistance from Barclays this year and what trends they show. We talk macroeconomic challenges that could affect M&A going forward, including investor behavior, and we get into continued consolidation and more. Give it a listen. Amrit, it's so great to have you here with me again. I always love our conversations about M&A and excited to jump back into another one. So welcome. Thank you, Sandy. It's great to be here. Um, It's great to be coming out of the pandemic and it's great to have the opportunity to sit down uh, and chat through this. There's been a lot going on in the market. Yes, a lot going on. Um, So let's get going. Um, I understand that your firm, Barclays, recently handled the uh, a couple transactions that we know of, uh, the Partners Group Investment in Foundation Risk Partners, as well as Truist's acquisition of Benefit Mall. Um, so if, if, is this true? And if so, do you have any interesting takeaways for us? Um, yeah, we did, Sandy. Uh, thank you for that. Look, I, I, I would start by congratulating both of uh, those management teams and those sponsors and, and candidly those buyers too for two fantastic assets. Um, as you know, in m and I'm sure as you've picked up with others, these were long journeys <laughs> over the course of a couple of years to kind of get us to these kind of outcomes. Um, and we're very happy with both of them. Look, what, what I'd tell you, and I think we're going to talk about this a bit more, um, is there a continuation of two broader themes that we've consistently talked about. One, um, is private equities continued interest in the sector, um, especially on the retail side, but also growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we expect to see more of that. So we'll talk about that, I'm sure. Uh, and on the other side, it's interesting, a strategic transaction uh, where a, you know, Truist has been a longtime consolidator of these assets and someone who sees long-term value in insurance distribution to supplement their broader business continuing to acquire. So I think that also opened the door for many people uh, to think about strategic conversations, uh, which we're seeing as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely a couple topics that we're going to dive further into. Um, But I understand the Foundation Risk Partners transaction had some uh, impressive stats around it. Can you share some of those? Uh, yes, look, it, it, it certainly did. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably not in a spot to talk a lot about the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not public information. But what, what I can tell you, which I think is relevant, is why that really resonated for folks and for buyers in the, in the community. Um, I, think, I think, first of all, we spent a lot of time uh, with the company and with their sponsors and others setting the stage and creating an environment for the management team to tell their story. I think that is super important. Um, And secondly, um, it was the nature of that story. It was a very different um, story than others had told in the past. It was one of integration, technology, operations, culture. um, And that really resonated with many of the folks around uh, the ecosystem here, especially new folks looking to enter the ecosystem. And by that, I mean the private equity guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they looked at lumber platforms in the past, and this looked and felt very different than just someone aggregating. Obviously, aggregating is what they do, but there are other elements to it, which I think 
have become more and more important. And maybe with this macro backdrop will be more important. Um, and then thirdly, um, you know, I think there's a lot of teams out there, but this was a team that really shone uh, quite impressively for from in, in the context of what they've been able to achieve over four years. So uh, while I can't get into all the numbers, I think, I think the why is probably, you know, more important to be, to be candid about it, about how they got there and what they did. So you talked, you just mentioned the macroeconomic sort of conditions that we're working with here. Um, let's go into those a little bit more. Um, what, you know, inflation, interest rates, the broader market, what are your thoughts about how, what's happening here and how this is affecting uh, our space? Um, yeah, look, in, in, in reality, um, I, I would argue that we were, you know, we're in the fall of 2022 here. Um, there is a fair amount of uncertainty in the macro backdrop. Yeah. Um, look, we're coming out of a global pandemic and that resulted in a couple different things. There was um, a incredible increase in the money supply with checks written to people, government spending. Now, all of that was, you know, there, there was politics that drove a lot of it and justifications for a lot of it, but you had just a tremendous increase in the money supply. You had um, a material, somewhat material uh, withdrawal of labor with folks either choosing not to work or deciding it wasn't worth it. So you had this kind of reduction in the labor force. Um, and then I think there's a third trend going on, a bit of a longer term trend, which is the onshoring of production, which we for many years had moved to places like, you know, China, India, mm -hmm. Southeast Asia. Um, and, you know, the pandemic brought home a lot of the risks of doing that for folks. Um, and onshoring that labor and that production is a lot more expensive than offshoring it because that was the drive. Right. Um, and in my view, you put increased money supply, you put a reduced labor force and you put onshoring of production all together. Um, it's no surprise that you face real inflationary pressures in the economy. Um, and, you know, the Fed, Federal Reserve has a mandate to maintain price stability um, and I don't blame them for what they're doing. They actually need to be doing what they're doing, given the mandate. Um, and it is a consequence of, of, of the dynamics we went through over the last couple of years. Um, let's just hope it's all managed in a way that so that we have, you know, the proverbial soft landing as opposed to the hard landing. Yeah. Um, but we are going to be in this environment, I think, for at least a few more months here and, and you know, some, some, some way into 23. So how do you think this will affect the, the brokerage buyer marketplace, both for large and smaller deals? Um, so so it's, it's, it's in, in my view, going to be a little mixed. Um, I think for the larger, you know, platforms or larger businesses that are maybe already sponsor owned, you have quite sophisticated capital partners for these firms. Um, and they're aware of the backdrop. And they're monitoring their companies and the situation quite closely. And I think uh, they're being more and more conscious of what they own, but they're also being much more conscious of where they deploy capital and their portfolio companies deploy capital. Because, um, you know, you, 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 like I said, you hope we get a soft landing. We hope it kind of works out well, but they're, they're going to be cautious. And, and, and we've seen that more and more in large processes, let me call it where you know the typical xyz private equity guys are just more cautious 
Um, so you have that dynamic. On the smaller tuck-in side, maybe some of the tuck-ins that those guys do or the likes, um, I think it's starting to emerge um, a more cautious environment. Now, Q1 was slow for M&A this year. I know you've done a lot of that and you've seen a lot of that and, and it's picked back up this year and looks like we're going to kind of run through the tape again a bit. But people have been using cash on balance sheet, debt, you know, other facilities they have to fund M&A. But as those kind of run their course through and people have to come back to the market to raise capital to do more of those tuck-ins, that higher cost is going to be much more apparent. Mm -hmm. And I think that really plays into the market to some extent in, in 23. So those smaller deals become, you know, maybe maybe less expensive, maybe the bar is higher, but, but I think that's, that's something we see into the future. So... Talking about private equity for a second, and one of those themes we we you mentioned earlier, um, you said you think they you will we will see more caution out of them um, potentially. Does that mean just being really more um, thoughtful and specific about what they're looking for in a deal, or does that mean fewer deals because they just have less to work with, and then? Also, after that question, <laughs> um, we've often seen a lot of private over the past few years, private equity has been a big theme, as you've mentioned. Do you think this economic environment will change that going forward, um, the, the private equity dynamic within M&A? So I don't think I, so I think the answer to both of those is I don't think it really changes it, um, but I think it does raise the bar across the board. Um, a few folks have come to me and said, oh, this, this could be the end of it. You know, it's Armageddon now. I'm like, look, you got to calm yourself down a little bit. It's far from that. Yeah. Um, look, this is still a, a required product for people. It's a highly stable industry. It's got great margins and great long-term growth and great free cash flow. So let's not divorce ourselves from the fundamentals of every business here. Um, but yeah, we are in a slightly different macro environment. Uh, we, you know, all, all of us can generally do simple bond math, which is when interest rates go up, asset values come down because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm discounting the same cash flow by a higher number. So that that's just part of math. You can't, you can't get away from that. I would argue though, the opportunities are still plentiful. Um, and there's still a lot to do. I still think there's, um, plenty of folks who, um, um, one, you know, whether it be new entrants or others to consolidate, I think we'll continue to see a lot of that. But I, but I do think the bar is higher across the board for folks to think about it um, and where they're going to deploy the capital and where they choose to deploy it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's talk a little bit about um, one of the transactions that you worked on was the sale to a consolidator, as you mentioned. Um, yeah. What are, yeah. What are your thoughts on um, going forward with large consolidators? What are you seeing there? So it, it's funny, you, you and I have been kind of debating this, this question for a little while over the last couple of years. And I know we, we, we you know, we, we specifically worked on one transaction with, with Alara Propel there last year. Um, and every year I say it's progressed a little bit. Um, <laughs> and I'll say again this year, I think it has progressed a little bit more. Um, historically, um, the, um, the hurdle was high 
to get kind of all the stakeholders around the table to align on the economic and social issues for for the merits of a transaction, right? Because it's, I could go buy something big and it was a big integration bet to get that right or I could keep doing what I'm doing and then that's worked out really well so far. So why take that risk? Mm-hmm. I, I think what's interesting, at least in my mind to debate um, is does this macroeconomic and interest rate environment um, at least open the door for people to have more of a conversation, mm-hmm. right? Do they say, hey, look, it, it's my plan A might still be my plan A, but should I at least understand what plan maybe C could look like? And should I have a conversation or not? Should I see if there are social things that matter or what? And should I explore if in this different macro backdrop and this different interest rate environment, the economics of whatever plan C or plan D uh, might actually be compelling? Um, so I do think, um, you know, there's more conversation. I cannot predict anything happens, uh, because plan A and B still look very attractive for many people. Um, but I think many senior management teams and folks are, are, are much more open and receptive and like, it's silly not to have it there. There's, there's no value not having it. Yeah. It's interesting to see if, how this moves forward in this environment specifically, um, as you noted, there's maybe different reasons to think about it than before. Yeah. Look, I, I like I said, I still think the bar is really high. Uh, the hurdle is really high, I should say. Um, but um, it's, it's not stupid to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. All right. We've also seen a number of transactions in the MGA market. Um, any observations there? Um, yes. Uh, well, look, it's obviously been a much busier segment, um, in the market in the last recent years, um, Mm -hmm. as, uh, as, as opposed to before. Uh, And, and I think a little bit stems from, you know, you've had a lot of capital, um, private equity or otherwise that has invested in retail brokerage. And I think a lacy, great thematics and trends within that part of the ecosystem. And they say, what are the other ways I can get exposure to that? And I think this is largely a, uh, a function of that where they say, I know what, I, I know the stuff I'm good at it. I've had some history in it. What else can I do? So I think that's really uh, had a lot of folks bring pretty interestingly about broadening their set of capabilities and where else they can go. So I, I do think we continue to see more of that. Yeah, it's a, that that really seems to be happening as you see more, even other types of industry stakeholders acquiring MGAs. That yeah, it, and, and it's interesting, right? And then there's a whole little merry-go-round of uh, carriers acquiring MGAs right. or, or, or email, but sometimes there are teams within carriers that want to leave and then want to set up their own companies yep. um, and they're getting capital from, from, from people to set up their own businesses and then they start to consolidate. So it's honestly working both ways. <laughs> All right. Um, also on, on a similar note, we do hear a lot of talk of increased interest in specialty transactions. I think we've seen their valuations go up. Um, what do you, what are your thoughts there? Um, yeah, look, um, Similar to, similar to some of the thematics I mentioned on before, 
um, I think the consolidators, just given there's a lot of them, um, they're looking for ways to differentiate themselves in the market uh, when they ultimately do something or, or, or actually ways for them to grow candidly as well uh, across their book of the business. So, you know, you could have, you know, consolidator Y or, or, or platform Y say, I have a bunch of producers in this market and they know all these guys that own trucking companies. Like it's, it's, it's the perpetual example, right? But mm-hmm. all these guys that know trucking companies, but I don't have subject matter experts. Mm-hmm. So if I could go buy someone who has a real niche and expertise and can either build programs or uh, is smart enough to do that, um, you know, one, I get to differentiate my business by having something real special uh, that has, you know, more barriers to entry around it to protect my business and to make it look good. But two, I have the ability to kind of cross pollinate those skills across my broader book and leverage the producers that I have that might know all these trucking guys, but will never give me business because I don't have enough of a play scale or I don't have enough of the, the specific knowledge and expertise they need to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, so it can help drive organic across my book if I can do that. So there's really a couple, couple dynamics is how do I differentiate myself? How do I build more of a competitive lasting advantage versus others I have? And does it help me from a growth perspective? Yeah, it makes sense as you see, you know, brokers even trying to build more expertise in certain areas and really become more consultant like for their clients. Yes, that's right. All right, let's go to InsureTechs. Um, are we seeing a sea change in the way investors are evaluating InsureTechs? Uh, look, the InsureTechs over the last couple of years um, have had a really rough go of it. Um, and I think the market is looking at them very differently. We, you know, I think when I've done these for you a couple of years ago, we talked about growth and we talked about um, customer acquisition. We talk about changing the way people interact and deal with their insurance companies. I think the, the, the meaningful decline in valuations for some of the, at least some of the public folks has really recollaborated that conversation for many. Mm-hmm. And um, the real focus now isn't it growth at all costs, because if, if, if you, you and I are industry veterans and in insurance know that Growth at all cost is easy. Just lose as much money as you want. <laughs> um, that, that's the best way to do it, insurance. Um, but there's a real focus now on unit economics, LTVs, customer acquisition costs, building a business that has you know scalable loss ratios um, and expense bases that you can grow into. And managing, honestly, your exposure to reinsurance. We, we haven't talked about it yet, but everything I'm hearing is one one's going to look brutal. Yes, yeah, same, and, same. Right? And so when you, when you put that in the context of what these challenges these businesses are facing, investors um, are very focused on trying to navigate that broader, that broader thematic because, you know, Capitalite is great when reinsurance is cheap. Capitalite is going to be difficult for some of these guys going forward. Yeah. Um, but that that said, look, I, I I think there are a couple of really interesting places to play in it. Um, I like cyber. Yeah. I like some small commercial stuff. I think there's real opportunities and people building long term differentiated platforms that provide value. Um, and then I, I see a lot 
less in my world, maybe this is more technology focused, but on the plumbing, right? The the the, the plumbing within insurance companies and the APIs that connect, like there, there's a lot to be done from an efficiency perspective there. Yes, absolutely. I think with, you know, sort of smoothing out that those different APIs and different connectors and and figuring that out seems like the next place to go from that. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a tremendous amount of opportunity there. And honestly, a lot of what I'm seeing, or at least what I'm hearing in InsureTech, I'm, I'm far from a tech guy, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question for you. Um, looking to 2023, which is coming right around the corner, any additional thoughts on what, you know, we can look for in brokerage M&A? Um, yeah, look, I, I think uh, a couple things. One, one I've already mentioned, I think we've seen, um, as I mentioned before, I think the tuck-ins um, will continue to be a little bit more challenging for folks. Um, I, I think by that, I mean, buyers will be more discerning in quality um, of the assets that they want to acquire um, and more picky there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that also will ultimately then play into valuations for those businesses. Um, I, I, so, so I expect to see that. Um, and secondly, look, I, I, I think we might see something um, larger, something more transformational. Again, no bets on it. Um, those things are very uncertain, and they're and they're low probabilities. But um, there, like I said, there's more of that conversation. There's larger, sorry, larger. You mean on the in the retail space? Yeah, I think you might see some more stuff there. Um, but look, you you have investors who are generally very patient and will do the right thing for for them and their business and their shareholders when it all makes sense. Um, but I'm focused on on seeing if there's stuff there. Yeah. Well, it's always great to hear from you. It's it's always insightful. We love to hear what's going on from your viewpoint. Um, so thank you so much. And I look forward to our next chat. Thank you, Sandy. Really appreciate it. It's, it's always a pleasure to connect with you and, uh, and connect with your member space too. That was Amrit David, Managing Director at Barclays. Thanks for listening. You can listen to my previous conversations with Amrit at leadersedge.com.